I am Michael. I'm a small business owner. I'm an investor. I'm a work in process improv artist, a bit manic, and always looking for something new to entertain me. I'm a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It's a Dweebs Global production. Uh, they supply free mentorship for people around the world. Uh, anything from uh, depression to resume help, uh, they want to be there for you. So it's dweebsglobal.org and it's completely free. Uh, I am here today with a very special guest. His name is Jeffrey Deskovic. Have I said your last name correctly? Deskovic. Deskovic. Okay. Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey was wrongly convicted of rape and murder at the age of 16. He spent 16 years behind bars, ultimately being exonerated through DNA, through the DNA data bank, which identified the actual perpetrator. He has gone on to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, having already helped exonerate eight other falsely accused. He's passed three laws and has 10 active cases he is working on and has also gone back to school and obtained his law degree in hopes of using it to help others. So um, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for, yeah, th yeah th thanks, thanks for having me. You know, when you're able to free people who are, you know, wrongfully convicted, I mean, that's, that's like the holy grail right there. I mean, that's uh, to reach back and help somebody that was in a similar situation to what I was. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate to be able to free somebody that way. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what you've what you've done uh, with what you've been handed, and uh, how you've have used your resources and really your life to to dedicate to helping others. And uh, it's really respect that. Um, I I don't think there's there's not enough of you out there. So uh, thank you. Yes. Thanks for doing it. So I just I kind of want to get into back your background a little bit. Uh, where are you from? Yeah. So I was. Born in North Terrytown, which is now referred to as Sleepy Hollow. So people remember the legend of Sleepy Hollow with the Headless Horseman and everything. So I was born there. I grew up in Peekskill, which was a short uh, 20 minutes north of there in the same county in Westchester County, New York. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you born and raised there. Um, what was your childhood like? Yeah, I mean, I had a... Uh, I, I, Pretty, pretty I had a pretty happy childhood. Um, you know, I, we, I grew up at the, in this apartment complex called Crossroads Apartments, and there were a lot of um, there were a lot of buildings, and there were a lot of kids that lived there in the surrounding areas, and they would frequently come over and we'd play in the playground or in the tennis court or in the swimming pool. We'd go to the parks, and we would do all kinds of things. And really, I was kind of like the life of the party in the sense that whatever I would suggest it was me and one other boy that, that and whatever we would suggest would usually be what what the group did whether that was we're going to ride bikes we're going to go play monopoly we're going to swim hey we're going to go play basketball we're going to play stickball we're going to play one kind of game we even invented a few games so that was me growing up and you know it continued that way through high school but except that the, the change though was that um that was after school so in school you know, um, and I had I had skipped a grade when I was younger. So everyone in the high school was, you know, like a, a year older than me. And, you know, but it felt like the gap was like longer than that because I really wasn't into what they were into. They were, you know, they were into like, you know, you know drinking and keg parties and, you know, and chasing girls and dating. And, and I really wasn't, uh, I really wasn't, in, I wasn't, I wasn't really into that. I was really into what I just, you know, mentioned. Uh, mentioned before so as a result of that I didn't I, I didn't fit in and I was I just became like quiet and withdrawn into myself so I had that life while in school and then I had the other life after school so did you did you have a lot of friends at that point when you were I did I did I had a lot of friends at that point the other thing I wanted to share for listeners is you know a uh, skill New York um, again it was suburbs and you know people should think uh, think ethnically diverse and think middle class got you 
got you. So uh, living the way that most of us lived. When did things take a, I guess things didn't really take a turn. It was pretty sudden. Um, how yes. Did, how, what was the circumstance of the, the rape and the murder? I guess before I even ask you how you became a subject. A subject sure. The, sure. So um, in terms of how I became aware of everything, so this, the victim uh, was, was in a photography class in, in the high school. And she was, um, and like, like everyone else in the class, um, you know, she was given an assignment to go and shoot certain foliage. And the teacher had assigned uh, like male students with the female students you know, um, as like a buddy system, like a safety protocol. And uh, the male student who was assigned uh, to Angela skipped out, played hooky on the assignment. And for some reason, um, you know, that was like the one, and, and Angela, just for context, she was an immigrant, she was from Colombia. Uh, she had been in the country for about a year, year and a half. Um, you know, she was working on speaking English. Her English was, um, you know, so, somewhat limited. And she lived, she lived a very sheltered life. She never went anywhere unless she was accompanied by her older sister or, or her parents. Uh, so this male student skipped out on the assignment. And for some reason, uh, I, I guess she just wanted to, you know, stretch out and feel her own individuality, almost like we were talking about. So when she, as I understand it, when she went home with her sister, her sister went to, to the rest, to, to the bathroom. And uh, when she came out, her other sister was gone. Angela went to do her, go to where, shoot the, go, went to her assignment at uh, Hillcrest Park to shoot, shoot the photos. She went without her. So that was the only time she had ever went anywhere without, without anybody there. And uh, she went missing. And I remember that, I remember hearing uh, an announcement over the Peekskill High School PA system, you know, announcing that she was missing and that if, um, you know, if anybody um, had saw her or heard her, you know, they should come to the principal's office, um, you know, right away. In fact, there was um, even even an article in the uh, in, in in the newspaper. You know, mur murders were pretty rare in in Peekskill. You know, um, at, at that point, there hadn't been a murder there in maybe twenty years. You know, I mean, teenage murders in a middle class neighborhood is rare. Period. Uh, yes. How well did you know Angela? Uh, not very well. I mean, I get it all depends. The short answer is not very well. I mean, again, I put a little color to it. I mean, how do you want to define the word? No. I mean, she was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. Uh, we weren't even on a high buy basis. I mean, I think I sp spoke to her, what, two times? Sounds uh, like the majority of people I knew throughout school as well. So it's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, knew the face, knew the name, slightly knew the personality and uh, not much. Right. So when, how did you become a, a, a suspect? Yes, uh, I became a suspect because the police interviewed many students at the high school and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I um, uh, seemed strange and because I didn't, I didn't uh, fit in. So that, that was um, how I got originally got on the police radar. Uh, second factor was uh, I was a sensitive uh, teenager and, and this was really my first brush with death. And, um, you know, I reacted emotionally and the police interpreted my being emotional. They thought that my emotional reaction was disproportionate to what my actual relationship with her was. And uh, so they looked at that as some kind of outward sign that, you know, I was sorry for what I had done. I just want to point out again for context, though, you know, uh, while I was emotional, I mean, I don't think I was all that. I don't think I was that different from everybody else. I mean, this really shook the whole Peekskill community up to the point where, 
free mental health counseling was offered to anybody in the city that that wanted it. You know, you know, and there was again, it was like a population of approximately like twenty five thousand people that lived in Peekskill. Right. Uh, maybe a reinforcing factor was that the uh, the police uh, got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the uh, psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that profile. So that was like a type of uh, reinforcing factor. Got you. Um, I- I'm guessing they were interviewed friends as well at this point. Yes, they did. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they interviewed other people as well, including some of my friends. Yes. Right. Uh, were your friends there to back you up? Were they? Um, well, I don't really know what, what they I don't really know what, what, what they said. I mean, certainly nobody nobody said anything, you know, nobody said anything incriminating, uh, you know, about me. I mean, I, when, the, when the, the time when the crime happened, um, you know, I was um, actually playing I was actually playing wiffle ball with one of my friends. We came up with these this creative way of how to play wiffle ball like one on one. And I guess, I guess they, uh, as kids, we, as, as, as kids and as guys, we'll find any way for competition. It's uh, absolutely, yes. In our genes. But I, yes. I, I guess they, they didn't believe your friend, the, your alibi. Yeah, as far as I know, they, they, they never interviewed him. And, you know, that would be, I mean, not to jump too far ahead in the story, but that would be a mistake that was repeated, you know, by my, my attorney as well. He never interviewed my alibi, never called him as a witness. That is crazy so you were brought in for for questioning i guess this was pretty early on yeah this was pretty early on i mean look i lived right across the street from from the high school you know the police were able to you know act it wasn't hard for them to guess like which there's only two routes to get to the high school from where i lived at and on my way to the high school uh these two men in long trench coats stepped out of their car out of the car an unmarked car and called my name and they they said they were police officers and uh, they wanted me to uh, come down to the police station so I could help them out. And I told them, well, I don't know anything about the crime, so I, I don't see how I could possibly help you out. And they insisted they wanted me to come down to the police station to help them out nonetheless. Hmm. You know, and so so I did. Um, and that became, you know, from, that became the starting point of everything so for about six weeks the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which um in, in which half, when half the time when they would speak to me uh they would talk to me as if i was a suspect and then they would when they would push too hard and they would um, I'd start to become you know frightened then they would switch up the tactic and they they would then start talking to me like pretending like they needed my help to solve the crime you know jeff is this junior detective helper theme would would be would be played up, would be played. So, you know, it kept me off balance, you know, emotionally, psychologically, I didn't really understand what was, what was happening. And, uh, you know, a couple of quick background things, which, you know, intersect into that dynamic. I mean, I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any way. And that, in, that intersected with this um, good cop, bad cop um, tactic that they executed on me, which is, you know, have one, one officer takes on a more aggressive role, whereas his partner pretends to be um, opposed to the crime, a friend, like, opposed to what's going on, like a friend, but it was somehow powerless to intervene. And obviously the purpose of that tactic is that when a person who's being questioned becomes frightened, you would naturally look for, to a friendly face for assistance. And I began to look to that officer who was pretending to be my friend. I, I began to look up to him as like a father figure, positive adult male role model. 
The second thing is before I was a teenager, you know, the career that I dreamed of having when I grew up was to be a cop. So this unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi police work was how the police were able to pull the wool over my eyes as to the absurdity that a 16 year old would be able to assist in an active homicide investigation. Right. How is your mom? Uh, how is your mom handling uh, you being taken in questioned and you dealing with the cops? And well, the- she didn't know. She only knew the first time. You know, she knew that she knew the first time. Uh, and then, you know, and we, I, we had, she told, she made clear to me that, you know, she didn't want me to speak to the police any, any, any further, you know. Um, but, you know, I was 16 years old and I knew better than my mother was. And, you know, look, I'm innocent. I don't know anything about the crime. I don't, you know, I, I don't see how anything bad can happen from any of this. I mean, look, they, they, you know, the cops are our friends. They're there to protect us. They're telling me they need money my help to solve, you know, you, you, look, you, you don't understand what's going on. Just, you know, and I, and I just would keep interacting with them. And, and, and she didn't, she didn't know that. And, you know, the police, you know, knew that they knew that my mother didn't want me speaking to them. They knew that I didn't want my mother to know, and, you know, and so they worked around that, you know, they, they facilitated my keeping her in the dark. Okay. How did they get you to a point is a, uh, we hear about this happening all the time and it's really hard for somebody to imagine that that hasn't been through it, but how did they get you to a point to essentially confess to the crime? Yeah. So eventually they, they got me to agree to a polygraph test. They told me, look, some new information is coming to the file and we want to share that with them. And that's going to allow you to be even more helpful to us. But first though, you're going to have to take and pass a polygraph, uh, a polygraph test. So the next day, rather than report to the high school, I instead, went to the police station where I had heard the rumor mill that other people had polygraphed. But instead, they drove me to uh, the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County, whereas I was a native of Peekskill and Westchester County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car. Uh, And so, you know, that meant I was not able to leave on my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. Uh, Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother, whom I lived, they thought that I was in school, and so they had no idea anything was wrong, so they did not call around looking for me. Uh, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I pushed past my own concern by just thinking, I'm here to help the police, so what does it matter? let's Let's just get on with it. Right. Uh, from there, they put me in a small room and they gave me countless cups of coffee, which seems pretty clear in hindsight. The purpose of doing that was to get me wired up. Oh, yeah. And then they attached the polygraph uh, machine to me. And then this polygraphist, who, by the way, this polygraphist was Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed as a civilian. He never identified himself as a, as a cop. I had no idea he was a police officer. He, he never read me my rights. And... Uh, and he launched into his third degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He um, raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. You know, and in the manner he was conducting himself, I mean, it, it was very frightening, especially for me that, you know, I, I was not used to talking to grown men, you know, much less somebody who was, you know, acting like he was. So he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And, you know, as each time hour goes by, my fear is increasing in proportion to the time. And finally, he says, what do you what, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. 
And and that really shot my fear to the roof. And that's when that officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he had been holding them off, but could not do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added that if I did as I wanted, that they'd stop what they were doing, that I could go home afterwards, that I was not going to be arrested. Uh, being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long-term implications, just being concerned my safety in, in, in the moment. I mean, I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. You know, there was this push-pull dynamic in play. I mean, on one hand, there was the possibility of harm he threw in the air, and on the other, he, uh, you know, he he um, made this made this false promise. He threw me this false life preserver. And so I made the decision to make up a story uh, based upon the information that they had given me in the course of that interrogation and in the uh, six weeks uh, run up to it, as well as some items from the newspaper. So by the time it was all said and done, and I had collapsed uh, onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably, you know, needless to say, I was arrested and uh, I was charged with the murder and rape. Right. Um, it's it's so hard to believe they put you through that. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but just on this point, I mean, I, I've been home for 14 years now and I do a lot of advocacy work as, as you alluded to. And, you know, part of that is um, doing uh, speaking engagements and media interviews and even just um, in, in formal meetings and informal conversations. And sometimes like I read, there's, there's been times in the past, I mean, I'm not there anymore, but there've been times in the past where I've like felt like I felt like really stupid. You know, and I question, you know, this is pretty stupid what you're doing right now. You know, you, it was very stupid what you did. I mean, and that you're, you're going around, you know, you, you falsely confessed to something you didn't do. And it wound up costing you 16 years of your life. And, you know, you're going around telling people about it. You should stop speaking about it and just like crawl under a rock someplace and like never be heard from again. Right, well, you know, so I have had, I have had that, that feeling, that sentiment. Right, well, thank you for not not letting that happen because I doing a thousand times more good sharing it. And, and absolutely, it. yes. Is there a secret that you have that helped you get over that, or is it just it's something? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess just think over 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 time. Maybe the secret is this: is that I've come to realize that my mission in the world, you know, is is to do this anti wrongful conviction work, and I, you know, that's how I make sense of everything that I that I do when I just look at the false confession as just as part of that as part of that process and I've just kind of come to be at, at, at peace with that but it, it it took me a really really long time to, to to get there was there any other evidence against you uh yeah so before I went to trial the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab which showed that semen found in the victim didn't didn't match me which you know by rights the case should have ended right right then and there but not wanting to, um, instead, they continued to um, prosecute me full speed ahead. In order to explain away this DNA evidence, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. So when there's an autopsy done, there's written audio notes which are done at the same time as findings are made. And so it was only uh, six months after doing that autopsy, uh, hundreds of autopsies later that he suddenly, in, in order to help the prosecutor get around the DNA evidence, this medical examiner claims that he, that he, he, re he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed that the victim had been sleeping around, which is what allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA evidence didn't, uh, didn't match me. That didn't mean I was innocent. That was just yet another person 
that she slept with prior to my murdering and raping her. Uh, taking it a step further, he named another youth by name, another student from the high school that he claimed had slept with the victim. But he never performed, he never, he never had it, he never tried to support that. You know, he never set the proper evidentiary foundation. He never had that other person give a DNA uh, sample. He never even called him as a witness. He just simply made the unsupported argument to the jury. Not having been content with having coerced the false confession out of me, the police officers um, also falsely attributed a statement to me. You know, they claimed that I said to them that I did that um, I, I said that I didn't know if the perpetrator ejaculated or not. But that word was not in my vocabulary as a 16-year-old, and and uh, further, that statement does, doesn't, didn't appear in any of their early police reports, uh, you know, their written accounts of the interrogation. It, that only appeared in their notes after the DNA didn't match me. So it, it, it's pretty compelling evidence that they came up with that, again, specifically trying to help the prosecutor get around the DNA. In terms of my uh, defense attorney, you know, I, I had a public defender and, uh, you know, I'd never been arrested before. You know, his attitude was, look, just when I would question him, like, you know, well, what is your plan? What's your strategy? How we, how we, how are you going to defend me? You know, his attitude was like, well, look, just look, just sit back. I'm the lawyer. Let me do my job. OK, you got into all this trouble in the first place by you thinking that you know better than adults. Just sit back and let me let me let, let me do this. No. And uh, that's what I did. I didn't I didn't know any better. By this point, I was um, 17 years old. I had, you know, I'd gotten bailed out uh, and. Um, uh, you know, and um, I went to trial shortly, shortly after my 17th birthday. And his attorney essentially didn't defend me. He never interviewed a call as a witness by alibi. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved that this confession was coerced and false. Uh, he never cross-examined this medical examiner to expose his fraud. I mean, he literally asked him no questions. He rarely met with me. Uh, when he when he would meet with me and, and I tried to explain to him what happened in the interrogation room and that I was innocent, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Um, when I hadn't decided if I was going to have a bench trial, which is decided by a judge or or go with the jury trial, which was something we were thinking about in light of the, the confession. You know, um, he came to me one day and told me that the judge came to him off the record and told him to pick a jury because he didn't want to be responsible for finding me not guilty. My lawyer was supposed to put that on the record and ask the judge to recuse himself because it wasn't proper for him to limit my decision that way. And that suggests that uh, bias, you know, perhaps he was feeling some public pressure because every time I made a court appearance, there was it was a major media moment. Uh, he should have never represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest. This other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying it's up with the victim was, rep was represented by another member of that same uh, Westchester County Legal Aid, the public defender's office, and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to provide a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from... Uh, calling him as a witness to explode the whole consensual sex theory. Lastly, I wanted to testify at the pre-trial hearing as to the threat and the false promise, but he, he wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, he said that he hadn't decided if I was going to testify at the trial or not. And in the event that I did, uh, he said that um, very seldom do people tell the same story in exactly the same way. And that if there was any variation at all, even if it was slight, that the prosecutor could 
make it appear as though I was lying, even if I had not, which didn't really make a lot of sense because first, if the judge had believed me, then the statements would have been ruled involuntary and therefore not admissible as evidence. And without that, they wouldn't have had a trial. And secondly, if it really went that badly, I didn't have to testify at the trial. And if I didn't, there would be no way that the prior testimony could be used. But then when I got to the trial, he wouldn't allow me to testify there either. He told me it wasn't his job to prove I was innocent. It was up to the prosecutor to prove that I was guilty. And he didn't think that it happened. Yeah, that might be a legal principle, but that's a naive way to practice law. In reality, you have to try to prove your client didn't commit the crime or they run a significant risk of being wrongfully convicted. I mean, particularly in a confession case where there's an 80% conviction rate. I mean, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove as many aspects of the confession as you can and bring it all together in your, in your closing argument. Or you run a risk, again, of being wrongfully convicted. But he didn't do any of that. The last thing I wanted to mention is, is that other irregularity regarding my trial was that the victim's clothing had been entered into evidence. So uh, her, her pants, her, her moccasins, and uh, her, her, her bra and her shirt. So at one point during the jury deliberation, the jury, and I want to mention one other thing about him that I'll come right back to that point. It, he was all over the place. So at times he was arguing to the jury that the confession never happened. At other times he was arguing that the confession happened, but it was false. At still other times, he was simply arguing that it was coerced. So when you take that kind of scattershot approach, you lose your credibility. I mean, I had no chance in the beginning. Uh, despite So all that happened. And, and at some point, the jury asked to see uh, the victim's bra. And that was a short, bright spot for the defense. I remember my lawyer turned to me and he, um, and, 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 he, and he said, good. They're thinking like I want them to think. You know, um, there are some bras that can't be ripped off of the victim's body. That was one of the statements in the course, false confession. So, you know, uh, but then, so them asking to see the bra that, that you know, if they could have saw that for themselves and I, I possibly could have been uh, acquitted. But that's when the judge no, told us that the clothes had been left in the courtroom overnight and that apparently the custodians, the, the, the cleaners, that they thought it was garbage and so they threw it out. And he allowed a photograph in which, quote unquote, you can almost see the bra. He allowed that to be substituted as, uh, for, the, for the actual bra itself. Wow. And, you know, and ultimately, I was you know, wrongfully convicted and given a 15 to life sentence. So then, so you were convicted. Uh, you were put in prison, obviously. Um, were you immediately targeted because you, uh, you were convicted of a rape? And, uh, yeah, I, I was targeted. I, I was targeted. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There is a there is a vigilante mentality towards people in, in prison towards people who have been convicted of sex offenses. So I'm in a men's maximum security prison. I'm 17 years old. I'm weighing 150 pounds. I think I have been two, in two or three fights in my life, if that, you know, and uh, I was in a very dangerous place. And, you know, I was, um, you know, beat up multiple times through the you know course of my years in prison i mean one time i nearly lost my life wow how did you get through it mentally combination of things i mean uh belief in god was one thing another thing was that you know in, in my mind i wasn't doing a 15 to life sentence i was just kind of like living from appeal to appeal i just thought i was doing like a year or two until the next 
court proceeding, which I was sure that I was going to win because I was innocent. I believed in the system. Uh, I used to go to the law library to learn the law, and that that gave a sense of comfort, of, of solace. I felt like I was like you know fighting back. And plus, at this point, I, I no longer trusted lawyers to defend me on their own. So I wanted to really give suggestions and have some oversight. And so to do that, I would need to know what I was talking about in the first place. So I went to the law library a lot. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated, and that would um, help me morale-wise. You know, I engaged in this uh, elaborate delusion that when I was playing chess or playing basketball or playing ping pong, I used to pretend that I was a professional player, and so are the other people. And when we went to the gym, that was a road game, and this other recreation location that was uh, that was at home. The people on the sidelines were the audience, and I would, you know, I could hear the color commentators calling the game because I used to watch sports and everything. You know, this was a defense mechanism. I, I, I needed to leave the prison for a couple of hours mentally, and so that that delusion was part of it. And and you tried to normalize the, mad, the madness. I mean, you tried to. You know, I'm not going to the prison assignment in the morning or in the afternoon. I'm going to school or I'm going to work. And I had to fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. I mean, I had to do all those things, you know, in addition to what we've already, you know, spoken about. <laughs> I don't know how I got, you know, I just told you how I got through it. But nonetheless, sitting here thinking about it as I'm recounting everything to you, I, 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 want, I, I wonder how I got through it also, even knowing all of those things. The you know, it, it's still a miracle that I, uh, it's still a miracle I didn't lose my mind. It's a miracle I didn't, I didn't commit suicide. It was a miracle I wasn't killed, to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't know how I made it, to be honest. An amazing uh, imagination. So Yes, yes, yes. Escape. Uh, how did you not lose faith in the system after how many, how many? Uh... I lost seven appeals. I lost seven appeals. Yeah. I, mean, I just, I just didn't give up. I, I naively thought that the higher up in the court system that I went, that, you know, the more accurate it got and, you know, the more learned the, the judges were, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. Um, so how did you finally, uh, how did this, what came about that finally exonerated you? Yeah. So I, um, one of the letters that I wrote uh, in, in care of a book publishing company to, to, to an author was instead sent to an investigator. And she, um, when I showed her the DNA paperwork, uh, she believed in my innocence. She never saw a case before where someone was convicted despite the DNA. And um, she tried to get people to take my case. And one of her ideas was the winning one. She suggested I write the Innocence Project. They had rejected me previously. So I wrote them again, and she lobbied them from outside the organization. She got other respected legal entities to lobby them. And then I got lucky that one of the caseworkers, uh, when the lawyers didn't want to go forward with my case, because they were used to taking cases where DNA testing was an option, but in which no prior testing had been conducted. They would just get the testing and then introduce the results to the court as newly discovered evidence. But that would not was not an option in my case because the DNA was known, so it wouldn't have been new. So that's why the lawyers rejected it initially. And when I reapplied to them, it was why they didn't want to go ahead with it. But this intake worker um, kept re repeating my, uh, repre representing my case, giving, coming up with new theories as to how the DNA could be used to constitute something new. And, um, and on the third try of her presenting it, they agreed to take my case. So getting the representation was the key. Second thing is um, the prosecutor, uh, uh, the district attorney, uh, Jeanine Pirro, who had 
whose office had fought all of, all of my appeals uh, with her having taken office um, after I was convicted, but before the appeals started. She left and her successor allowed me to get the further testing. And thirdly, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator his, that his DNA was in the data bank. So left free while I was doing time for his crime, he killed the second victim three and a half years later after he uh, killed the victim in my case, uh, confronted with the evidence he admitted he was the person who committed the crime. So on September 22nd, 2006, all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. I'm sorry, the conviction was overturned based on the newly discovered evidence. And I went back to court November 2nd. And at that point, everything was dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And he was ultimately arrested and pled guilty and was sentenced for the crime. Wow. Do you, do you remember uh, the feeling of, of when you knew you were going to be set free? Yeah, I didn't believe it. My lawyer came to see me and she said, and uh, so having been denied by so many times, I mean, I, I was very hesitant to have hope in anything because uh, it hurts too much when you hope and you get let down. It's like being wrongfully convicted all over again. So the lawyer comes to see me and she says, um, the items have been tested. And I said, well, what do you mean? They're not, they're, you mean they've been tested. They're not supposed to be tested for a month uh, from now. And she said, no, no, the district attorney got the items tested ahead of time and um, the results match the actual perpetrator and you're going home tomorrow. And I said, yeah, and I said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you're going home tomorrow. And I again said, no, I'm not. And a third time she told me I was going home. And I again said, no, I'm not. And so I had, she had to literally sit there and hold my hand. And for this three and a half hours of mental paralysis in which my head was spinning and all these different thoughts were going through my head. And I was mentioning them to her, you know, one by one. And one subject had nothing at all to do whatsoever with the next thought. And she was just patiently holding my hand, talking, to, you know, listening to me. And every now and then she'd break in and would say, um, uh, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? And I was like, no, 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 no. Just get that away from me. I'm not going home tomorrow. We're not talking. We're not talking. We're not talking about that. And eventually she said what made it real was she said, look, the visiting hours are almost up. Um, you know, I, I got to get your clothing size, your shoe size. There's a ton of work to have to be done between now and tomorrow in terms of the media. You know, so that's what made it uh, real. Of course, about, you know, five minutes after settling into that, a different fear crept into my mind, uh, which was I thought that something was going to happen between that day and the next. And the district attorney was going to change her mind. Right. And uh, they were going to do what they always did, which was, you know, fight me and win. Well, um, was it a really hard battle to integrate yourself back into society? It really, really was. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there was, um, you know, there's, there's the psychological after effects. Uh, it's typical when people are wrongfully have been wrongfully imprisoned that um, they get post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, uh, fear on seeing law enforcement, uh, feeling of processing things at a slower speed. Um, you know, just a feeling that I've been frozen in time. So I was released when I was 32, and but I felt like I was 17 because that was the age that I was when I was last uh, free. Uh, the world was different. Uh, technology was different. GPS, cell phone, internet, all, all of that was uh, hadn't been invented before. Um, I, I uh, the culture was different, mm -hmm. and cities and towns looked different. There was enough buildings and other structures to remind me of what it used to look like but there was quite a bit that was changed and so it felt like I was in some sort of, some sort of like alternative reality where in you know, a world that I didn't uh, 
you know, that I didn't belong, that I didn't belong in. It was very hard to put together a social circle. I mean, I was 32, but I felt like I was 17. So, you know, I still wanted to throw a ball around or go on the bumper cars or, you know, do other things that, you know, teenagers were. But I mean, who was my peers to do that with? I mean, I had lost touch with everybody and other people my age. I mean, you know, they, that, that was like long, from long, long time ago, there was um, social stigma. No one really questioned my innocence because the actual perpetrator was caught and arrested and convicted. And there was a report that had been um, done by four experts appointed by the district attorney to break down what went wrong in my case. So nobody really questioned my innocence. It was more, well, you were in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? You know, is it safe to be alone someplace, uh, you know, with you? So that stigma really hurt in terms of trying to, uh, you know, build a new social circle, uh, you know, personal relationships, that, that kind of thing. And, and then I was really, I was released with nothing. Right. So New York state has law and you can get compensated, but it, it wound up taking me five years to, for that process to unfold, you know, so I was always passed over for gainful employment and, uh, and I was make I was making money doing speaking engagements and writing articles, but, you know, doing speaking engagements is not a consistent form of income. And the articles, it was for our weekly newspaper. And they only wanted, because of that, they only wanted one a week. So, you know, it was very, uh, it was, I, I didn't, I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place. I nearly ended up in a homeless shelter at, um, at one point. Thank God, Mercy College, which um, gave me a scholarship. So I, one of the things I did while I was in prison is um, I went, I got the GED and I got the associates and I completed another year of schooling towards the bachelor's. But then the funding was cut for prisoners. And so that the fact that I was 30 credits short of the bachelor's degree made it into the daily uh, one of the, um, in the article that this daily newspaper in Westchester mentioned as like a human interest item. And so um, this dean um, at Mercy College uh, lined up a scholarship for me to the school to finish the bachelor's degree. Um, and, you know, and so that that really was kind of like an intervention. And and I was foolishly thinking I was too old at that point to go to college. That ship had sailed, but I didn't have anything else to do. I was just kind of floundering around. And so being given that opportunity, you know, I, I took that. And when I was just a couple of weeks from the homeless shelter, the school allowed me to live on campus as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, so I, from that, as I started doing advocacy work, I realized from that press conference that, you know, I didn't necessarily need to be a lawyer to do innocence work. And I had read that other people exonerated had taken to the speaking circuit. So I was speaking, I was writing, I was trading privacy for awareness by um, doing media interviews, hoping to further the issues. And um, I was meeting with elected officials, going, going to school and, you know, just having that general difficulty of existence that I, that I um, mentioned to you. It was very lonely. It was never, you know, just very hard to put that social circle together. And it was awkward whenever I would meet up with members of my extended family because, you know, I knew who they were intellectually. I had, you know, memories of them from when I was younger, but they were, they had either never come to see me or, you know, in many, most cases, but, or even when they did, it was uh, very, very few times. So, you know, they were somebody different or a different person. Now I, I was a different person. So it was hard to, uh, it was hard to relate. So I had to, uh, you know, overcome all of that. But, you know, after about five years, I was compensated. You know, I did get the bachelor's degree. I did get the master's degree. And I took some of the money and I started the nonprofit organization, uh, the Jeffrey Deskler Foundation for Justice. Uh, when I um, was, when it was maybe like three or four years left on what 
what what turned out to be the last three or four years of my wrongful imprisonment. I remember just being really hard up and strung out and stressed out and just kind of generally hopeless. And I just kind of, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I ever manage to somehow get out of here, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to become a lawyer and I'm going to free other people who are wrongfully convicted. So I remember having that thought then. And you stuck with uh, it and you-, you and, get- I, and I stuck with it. Yes, yes, I did. I stuck with it. Um, you know, I, I applied to law school after I got the bachelor's degree. I, I, I didn't get in. Uh, I worked for six months at this dead end job that I hated, but I just toughed it out for six months. And then, you know, finally I said, look, this is ridiculous. I, you know, I'm miserable. I, I dread going to work. You know, I'm just going to go back to school. I'm going to get a master's degree and I'm going to come back out and see what the job market looks like then. You know, so I did that. And then I was compensated. I started the organ. I was tired of doing individual advocacy. I wanted to go to the next level. You know, I wanted to be involved in exonerating people, which was something I could not do on my own. And so I suddenly had this means. I just thought, look, you, you know, this, this, this is your moment. You, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you had this crossroads, what are you going to do? And, you know, so I did decide to start, the, the, I did start the organization and we have the mission of freeing people and doing the policy work. And, you know, I, I um, used um, some of the money, seven figures of the money. I made a seven figure donation to my organization. And, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've, um, you know, we were able to get people out and change laws. Uh, you know, in fact, at this point, we've gotten nine people home. And at some point, I got tired of sitting in the front row in the courtroom. You know, um, you know, so, some of those cases, when we got nine people home, not all of them were exonerations, but some, several of them were, and others were other ways that we um, got got people home. But the, the key thing I'm trying to get to right now is at some point, uh, I got tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom. You know, I wanted to, uh, I might have, the, the lawyer might have, I might have been the boss of the lawyer, or we might have collaborated, worked on the case together, you know, but I couldn't sit at the defense table, and I couldn't, I couldn't represent any of the clients, I couldn't speak for any of them, and, you know, so I decided to make a second foray into, into uh, trying to get into law school, and this time I did get in, and I did graduate law school. Uh, congratulations, that's, that's wonderful, and uh, it's so commendable that you didn't just take the money and go off to some beach, and just, uh, drink some cocktails and, and settle sure. in life. Um, sure. I mean, look, I, I feel like I've had some, I've had educational opportunities and, and, and breaks that a lot of people in my position haven't had. And so I feel a tremendous moral responsibility to do everything I can. I think that my life circumstances, you know, gives me a platform and it would be a big waste to just never be heard from again, or to, you know, like you said, just go off on an Island, um, someplace I do, make sense of everything that happened to me. You know, I do feel like my place in the world is to fight wrongful conviction and criminal justice reform. You know, we have been able to help pass three laws uh, in, in New York in terms of videotaping interrogation, better what identification. Was, yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. What are the laws specifically? Yes, so uh, videotaping interrogations, uh, ident- you know, better identification procedures, uh, DNA database expansion, uh, the foundation is part of a bigger coalition group uh, called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of, and we were able to pass three additional laws, so a oversight board for prosecutors, uh, a tweak of that uh, discovery reform. So we helped to change the law pertaining to sharing information between the prosecutors and the defense. Now now it's automatic and it has to be like very, very early, uh, very early on. We want to repass that oversight, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. So the District Attorneys Association not wanting any oversight, they brought a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that of that of the law. And the judge rejected all their arguments but found the issue in the appeals procedure. So 
We're trying to repass that law, just making that tweak to it. Uh, we're trying to do that in Pennsylvania and also um, pass compensation. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not have compensation. So we were able to pass another law in Pennsylvania so that people have been exonerated or had charges dismissed against them and or been acquitted that you know now their, their records are automatically expunged. Whereas previously, uh, you know, been exonerees who you know been denied uh, employment, had trouble getting housing because they have a record and they're trying to explain to people have been exonerated. Look, look at those news articles. Like, yeah, but you have a rap sheet. So we're going with the rap sheet over the news accounts. So we were able to help. It's, it's crazy that we had to do that. That we had that, that was right. situation. But we, we did that in California. We're working again to have the, you know, the oversight for prosecutors. And we're, we, we think there's an opportunity in California to get, get rid of um, capital punishment. So we're, we're working towards that too with the, you know, given the obvious risk of um, executing somebody uh, innocent. Okay. And I understand you're also, you're also advocating for support for education for prisoners and. Um, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, look, first of all, I was a beneficiary of college education for prisoners and um, you know, uh, it gave me something constructive to do while I was there. More importantly, I had that much less ground to cover when I was released. And I saw not only in myself, but I also saw in other people, I mean, I knew prisoners there before they went into the program and I saw how the program transformed them and how they became different people and, you know, how, you know, people's horizons were expanded and, you know, people were talking about different careers that they'd like to have when they, you know, when, 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 they, when, when, when they were released. And, you know, college education for prisoners is a very serious crime fighting tool. Uh, Hudson Link, for example, which is a nonprofit organization that provides college education for some um, prisons because of this, the state and federal funding was cut for college education for prisoners. So the argument, the rhetoric that carried the day, unfortunately, previously was, well, why should why why should prisoners get a free college education when other people that have not committed a crime do not? But that was a false argument because, first of all, I you know the financial aid forms were the same, and so nobody would be allowed to go to college simply because they were in prison, they would not be eligible to go simply because they were in prison who wouldn't have been able to go on the outside through grants. Secondly, um, it was, uh, nationally, there was like a half of those, like, I think there was like one, I think it was like one and a half percent of the total number of college students across the country that went to college through grants were in prison. So it's not like for every person who went to college while they're incarcerated, that there was like a person on the outside who, you know, wasn't able to go because of that. And as I mentioned, it's a serious crime fighting tool. Hudson Link's recidivism rate is, is, is 2% compared to the national average of 68%. That is a massive difference. <laughs> yes. So I'm a big advocate of, you know, college education for prisoners and, you know, but that's another thing I've been, you know, been raising my voice up. I mean, I don't, I don't spearhead that, but I do, I do raise, I do lend my voice, you know, a platform that I have to, you know, give voice to that issue. And I've talked to elected officials before about that. And, you know, we haven't been able to get it, you know, they haven't been willing to do it so far. I mean, I'm hoping that we get another shot, shot at that. Um, well, anyone who's listening uh, that wants to help, what, what can they immediately do, either financially or non-financially or? Yeah, of course. So, look, we are a five hundred one c three organization. We're always looking for we're always looking for for uh, for donors. It's unfortunately not free uh, to do this work. 
to clarify, you know, I don't take a salary. You know, I, I, the compensation that I got, it, it, it's, in, it's invested in conservative investments that pay a certain amount of money every month. And, you know, that, that serves in lieu of a salary for me that allows me to make my ends meet and spend time doing advocacy work. So 100% of the money would go towards the uh, we're going towards the mission of freeing wrongfully convicted people and pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing that from happening. And, you know, there are the secondary uh, criminal justice reform measures. So we're looking for donors and we're looking for board members. I'm looking for celebrity spokespeople. We do have a crowdfunding campaign on the website called Patreon, which is for everyday people who are willing to be uh, uh, ongoing monthly donors. So my crazy dream Right, and I've had a few of them that we've shared about on uh, this episode, is imagine if 25,000 people were willing to donate like a lowly $3 a month on a recurring monthly basis. You know, that would give us close to a million dollars, you know, in, in um, donation, which we could hire, which could, we could use to hire, you know, attorneys, paralegals, um, investigators, other essential personnel to, you know, really ramp up, increase our capacity, uh, we'd, be, we'd be able to, in terms of cases, and we would be able to pursue policy changes in 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 uh, in, in additional uh, in in, in additional uh, states. I do want to share with everybody that it, there's a documentary short that's out about me uh, called Conviction, which is um, available on Amazon Prime. It's been selected by you know, eleven different um, film festivals. We won three awards: the Award of Distinction, Best Cinematography, Best Documentary. So you can. Uh, check it out on Amazon Prime, drop a comment. That's another way of, um, that's another way of helping. I do have a, uh, a public figure page on um, Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. So Jeffrey Deskovic, if you'd like to keep up with the advocacy work that I do. Uh, sometimes we need people to call their elected officials and insist that, you know, we want these criminal justice reform um, measures to be passed. Um, attending events, whether it's virtual right now or, you know, in, in person in, in the future. I mean, those things, those things all count uh, learning more about the topics and sharing that information. You know, I, my end goal is I would love to have a chapter in each state. This is a countrywide problem and ultimately each country because I see wrongful conviction as being a worldwide issue in countries where you don't hear about wrongful conviction. It's not that it's not happening there. What's, ha what's going on is that there are no exonerations taking place there. There's nobody working on wrongful conviction cases and in some instances, the court system um, doesn't have a mechanism by which uh, prisoners can even introduce new evidence to challenge the conviction afterwards. And people can email me through the website, uh, www.deskovic.org, and message me through social media, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, you know, so. Okay, um, and deskovic.org, that's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. Yes. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Conviction, by the way, a very powerful, very well-made documentary short. And I understand she's making a full length right now, correct? Yes, yeah, yes. The producer, Gia Wirtz, this was her first documentary, by the way. So she entered the field, uh, big, making a big splash. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Gia's been great to uh, work with. And she is, in fact, um, in, in the process of, um, uh, it's nearly done. Uh, and she's taking the documentary short, which is um, about uh, 20 minutes right now, 20, 21 minutes. And she's... Um, converting it into like an hour and a half uh, feature um, documentary. So yeah, there'll be, uh, you know, we'll give the, the sequel or the bigger version will get into a lot more of the legal aspects. There'll be, you know, there'll be other people that's, um, that, are, uh, that, that are interviewed. It'll be more than just, uh, it'll be more than just my, uh, my voice. That's on Amazon Prime for anyone that wants to see it. It's called Conviction. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, and again, visit Deskovic 
never going to say it, deskvic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. And I'm guessing they could find your Patreon from there uh, or it's patreon.com slash deskvic. Um, again, thank you. This was a great interview. I really appreciate uh, all the sharing that you did. My final thought, I guess, is, you know, that doing this type of work is why, you know, um, you know, it's, um, this is how why I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. You know, I want to, I got I to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that if I'm somebody anger, angry or, or, or bitter. And, you know, I, I, I take the energy that I would feel and I channel it into this, you know, advocacy work that I, that I, that I, that I do. And, you know, that's, that's what drives me. So I encourage anyone listening, whatever challenge you, you, you overcome in your life to, you know, reach, overcome it and, and reach back and help similarly situated you know, people set goals, have a plan, work hard, be willing to modify the plan and route because the goal is the goal. The goal is not the plan. You know, there are no, there's no excuses. There's no, there might be reasons why something is a challenge or it's hard, but there's no reasons why, why, why it can't be done. You just have to be willing to stick with it. And, and if you do at some point, you know, I think a door will, will, will open for you and find something meaningful and, and that makes a difference rather than just settling for just doing something just simply for the paycheck. It's amazing how you've refocused that energy. Um, I know that most of us hold on to uh, the, the angst or uh, the wanting to get retribution for the wrongs against us. And um, it's pretty amazing how you've turned that around and, and really, really done some amazing things with it. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. And um, again, this is uh, produced by Dweebs Global. So anyone that needs free or wants free mentorship help with mental health or resume writing or you name it, we have uh, free mentors from around the world, pretty much every country out there. So dweebsglobal.org. And it's free.